0: This Colorado exercise gives you a chance to experience the kind of radio reception you may expect under enemy attack. In some areas, the program may be hard to hear. Occasionally, it may fade. When this happens, simply turn up the volume. This emergency broadcast system will remain on the air. Do you know what Strontium-90 is and what it does? Um. No, no, I'm afraid I don't. No, I don't. I've no idea really. I I know it's some sort of gunpowder or something that blows up. In 1959, a Home Office manual wrote, "Public education in the matters of radioactivity will be progressive during the next few years." is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. Fallout can kill. Nobody can tell where the safest place will be. So stay where you are. If you leave your home, your local authority may take it over for homeless families. And if you move, the authorities in the new place will not help you with food accommodation or other essentials you are better off in your own home stay there
1: shining where clouds have been
0: Maybe it's something to do with spring
1: I feel no older than seventeen Maybe it's something to do with spring.
2: Hello lovely listener, this is Tim And as the dulcet tones of the master, Mr Noel Coward fade away ineluctably
1: like the sands of time through an hourglass. The sands or possibly the ashes of time through an hourglass. All these moments, my colleague Ross Caveney. All these moments. Lost like tears in rain. Time to die. Time to die. We are talking to you from the Caledonian
2: Road in North London. And this is Music for Films. We talk to interesting people about the music. And the films. And every so often, the music for films.
1: So often the streets in which the music and the films persist as memories. We've,
2: uh, we've made this map of the London Underground where we've put a tube station with a film, particularly films filmed at the tube station.
1: Or in their vicinity.
2: And which have some sort of connection to radicalism and the counterculture and... So it's really a show where we sort of, we talk about memory, we talk about films, we talk about culture.
1: but We, we explore d- the electric and the electronic alternative. We explore the mitre beams of culture.
2: Yes, the kind of the what-ifs, the ghost signs, the...
1: The quantum, the quantum thingies of
2: culture. It's sort of Schrodinger's film score of London, really, isn't yes, it? Yes, I mean, you know,
1: and he was a very cool cat.
2: He really was. Whether he was alive or dead. Look in the box and you'll find out. Is he alive or is he dead?
1: And the cinema is, of course, the magic box. It all connects. Everything connects. Or well, as Ian Forster didn't quite say. So, for this... There's a man who got an awful lot of films made in his books. He really did.
2: So, for this particular programme about the Caledonia Road, which is a very nice part of London, but doesn't have um, any particularly important cultural institutions or any particular kind of history of there haven't been any riots here or...
1: Well, it's got Penchival Nick.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of quite I'd colourful... away Nick. There's some colourful characters reside here, shall we say, but for, for this...
1: And there's this really nice Methodist church we are just coming. It's beautiful, isn't it? Which I've never noticed before. It's gorgeous. It's sort of deco Methodism. Yeah, we're
2: on the corner of Caledonia Road and Market Road now, if you want to look on the the map. Every so often we do these music for streets things where we just kind of wander around and you have to put up with us narrating everything we see.
1: Yeah, and noticing things that we've never noticed before.
2: So for this programme, what I really wanted to do was to try and explore the culture of radicalism and the culture in particular of the peace movement and of opposition to conflict, opposition to the arms trade, opposition to injustice of various different kinds. And so in a couple of minutes we're going to walk up this road and we'll be at a very, very important institution, but quite an unassuming one, Houseman's Bookshop. Houseman's Bookshop. Peace news. So we're going to talk about the the significance and importance of this this bookshop on the Caledonian Road. But we Ros, we need somebody to guide us to put all this in, in some kind of context. Well. Wow. Who who what possible guest could we find who is both Ooh. conversant in pop culture and comics and Marvel also movies?
1: Knows the stuff. Knows about the peace movement. Knows about It's opposite, the arms trade. If only we
2: had a mate who is quite eloquent and on lots of researchers' lists of people to call up to be on the big radio, like the Moral Maze.
1: Yeah, and of course we do, don't we? It's our mate. The one and only.
2: Press officer with campaign against the arms trade, but also a cultural maven and uh, all-round good egg. And uh, man about town, Andrew Smith, welcome to Music for Films.
3: Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Roz. And uh, I mean,
2: you have made, made some very uh, complimentary, very sweet observations about programmes we've made in the past.
3: I really enjoy your podcast. I really enjoy oh, the awful. show. I was this morning listening to your wonderful exploration of the Toby Young movie. <laughs> And I find that was a really interesting insight into a film which I have utterly no intention of watching. But by the end of it, (laughs) I did want to watch it more than I did at the start of it. And I don't know if that was your intention or not. Yeah,
2: it was, yeah. (laughs) And, I mean, that's what we're going to do with this show, is we're going to talk about a very interesting, not necessarily great movie, but an interesting film, The War Game, that was made by the... Maverick Left-wing film director Pete Watkins, who's also made some... We've got to say some really outstanding and terrifically important and good films. Uh, privilege, uh, uh La Commune. I mean, he's a he's a, a great power in the land and still making films. The War Game was a documentary that he made in 1965 for the BBC's Wednesday Play strand, and it's a very harrowing depiction of what a real nuclear attack on Britain was would it have been, been
1: like in 1965. The BBC
3: didn't like it much more, did they? No, I no. They refused to wear it. But well, I then think he went they... to Scandinavia, and they got a lot of his talents instead.
1: Yes, I think uh, I, I think it's just possibly the case that the Wilson government uh, put pressure on the BBC. I could be wrong. I could be wrong.
2: <laughs> but then, of course, Pete Watkins' The War Game then went on to win Best Documentary Oscar the
1: following year. So the BBC... Who looked stupid then? Needless to say, he had the last word, and um, has gone on having the last
3: word at repeated intervals ever since. Unfortunately, his last word—his last word—was actually quite a grim, depressing one, because there's not many subjects quite as serious as nuclear war. Are
4: entertaining,
2: no, but we should
3: stop, uh, you know, larking
2: around, because this is a serious subject, and. So, I mean, what I want to connect this to... Grim as death. Grim as death. What I want to connect this to is... The fact that we're walking along this extremely busy... This extremely busy road, which is, you know, like most great cities, and certainly is the case with London, is in a constant state of being rebuilt. Mm. So there's this great activity of human beings to... Build a future, construct buildings, uh, open
1: another coffee shop,
2: open another coffee shop, start some kind of business. And everyone is, with justification, concerned. There's a trepidation about Brexit. I mean, we're recording this in the spring. It'll probably go out in June, I would have thought. But there's a trepidation that with Brexit only a couple of months away, uh, you know, this is all going to change, perhaps. But of course,
3: it doesn't feel like it's a couple of months away, no, does it, it? Because the negotiations by this stage were meant to know roughly how everything's going to look and I mean um, we could speculate for this show, but really we don't have any idea. Because I've made a c- Shall we wander on this way? It's slightly quite Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're gonna
2: try and give your ears a bit of a break now from this traffic noise. <laughs> While everyone is worried about Brexit and justifiably so and people are also worried about the possible interference in our democratic process of the Russian government just as they're worried
1: And the and, and, and would-be American government But of course And the Saudi government
2: And the governments of the Emirates and Lots some of governments really. China. And very, I mean various governments are in the frame for using hybrid warfare this uh, form of cyber warfare where you're not trying to undermine your enemy uh through what the five eyes in particularly america would think of as a kinetic warfare which is something like the stuxnet virus that was used to shut down iran's nuclear centrifuges this is uh, influencing you know the way in which you look on people's social media accounts and they describe themselves as a social media influencer well vladimir putin arguably is the world's most successful social media influencer at the moment. But...
3: but although the technology is new, is the idea behind it new? Because the Cold War had an awful lot of these similar kinds of ideas were put into practice, just the technology wasn't as sophisticated to do it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Arthur T. Clarke, when, you know, back in the 60s, wrote that story, A Last Babylon, where he talks about the downside of uh, satellite TV. And programs that are designed to fuck with everyone, to mess with everyone's heads.
2: It's all right; you can say fuck on the podcast. Yeah, we ha- I had to edit that out for the broadcast one, but you can say fuck on the podcast.
1: Yeah, you um, say things a lot stronger than fuck. It's inter- interesting, actually, because though he was gay himself, Clark Clark said, "Well, of course, one of the things they'll do is encourage an awful lot of sexual deviancy. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> yes, Arthur, by which you mean sex with people who are old enough to that. Oh, well, I mean, uh, let's not go down that rabbit hole, shall we?
2: <laughs> oh, Ross, you're wicked.
1: Well, I mean, you uh, know... Did you ever meet Arthur Club? Club? No, I never did. I mean, you uh, know, and in fairness, Arthur... Arthur wasn't... Arthur wasn't into children. No. He was into people who were quite young. Yes. But not very young. Yes. All yeah, it's getting a
2: bit grim now. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, uh, Let's but get uh, back onto the cheeriest subject of everybody but dying but in he, a nuclear war. Yeah, yes, right.
1: exactly. Well, I mean, that's why he pissed off to, to, to Sri Lanka at an early stage. Yeah. Because he thought it was all going to go go to hell. So he decided he'd let you know, watch things go to hell from a tropical paradise with lots of cute boys. Well, so, I mean, I. No, sorry, Andrew. After I suppose
3: you. the issue hasn't gone away, though, because at the moment we're still talking regularly every yeah, day about yeah. if Donald Trump's going to meet with uh, the North Korean regime to try and denuclearise the peninsula so the issues from war games haven't gone away and in fact more countries have nuclear weapons now than did when the movie was is that made. right yeah. well yeah I mean well, so, so uh, roughly how in what what was the size of the world's nuclear
2: arsenal roughly in 65 as compared with now would you reckon
1: I couldn't put numbers on it, because I should have done research on this before. Well, The film says, what, 112 pounds of high-explosive for everyone on Earth?
0: In a recent mock NATO battle in Europe, using only tactical nuclear weapons and described as a limited engagement, it was estimated that over 2 million non-combatants would have been fatally or seriously injured. This family couldn't afford to build themselves a refuge. This could be the way the last two minutes of peace in Britain... Woodlock
3: But then the UK's nuclear arsenal Has grown since then Um, The American one most definitely The Russian one probably did downsize And then has increased again Um, And then Israel's got its nukes Which it says it doesn't Even though everyone knows it does So there's a lot more There's a lot of danger still in the world
1: Take a, a lovely, lovely. We, we
2: can wander on, on snap, yeah. Sorry, Roz, I interrupted you. A very good point. The about French France. W-
1: The French have got got it. The French had it then. I think. Yeah. Um. So
3: there's an awful lot of. I mean, there's an awful lot of um, deadly weaponry in world. you to kill everybody multiple times over. But it does seem like the film is, in some regard, more pertinent than it's ever been. And right. Now our best prospect for hope is that the two least... Our best uh, hopeful prospect is that the two least predictable leaders in the world can come to an agreement together not to nuke one another. So It's yeah. very worrying. And you so don't want to be relying on Kim Jong and um, Donald Trump, really, do you? No, yeah. I mean, you?
2: you wouldn't really rely on them to go to the chemist and get your prescription for you, let alone <laughs> negotiate away the world's nuclear arsenals. So, so and a, a technique that Pete Watkins uses in... The war game, which I think is particularly effective, is to use this very harrowing kind of nuclear attack cosplay, I don't where think
3: we're going to get out this way. Sorry, I thought that's right. Straight through. I think we'll have to go back onto that road, then take okay. the next main road, and then sure.
1: Okay. Well, I think, I think if we keep, let's look at. We could look at a map. Sure.
3: <laughs> I mean, this is what we should have done all along.
2: But it's interesting because I
1: think that. I think once we're past the, 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 the railway.
3: Because on the other side of um, the houses around here is the canal, which is quite nice and scenic, yeah. and that takes us out
1: at. I think let's just, that's that's just wing it. Go with the flow. Go happens. with the flow. Because the, there'll be a hook under the rail, w- railway line at some point.
2: The, um, the view of King's Cross, which is there on our Scala map, of course, is Frankie Howard. At his fruit stall, I think it is in the Ladykillers. It's it's a fantastic uh film. it's people yeah. running around the, sort of the the streets behind King's Cross, which is where we are now. But when it was all quite bomb damaged, and you still had this sort of infrastructure of railway lines and bits of canals and bridges, and there are these sort of lovely quiet bits around King's Cross. Yeah, and the and the Regent Canal, of course, built by. John Nash which was supposed to connect the whole city in this, this uh, huge waterway that would, that would loop around the top of North London it didn't actually work out because it, it stops at Regent's Park um, and something which I think Pete Watkins does very well, I mean uh, just to talk about the film for a moment the technique of using these very harrowing clips of people with their faces falling off yeah I mean people reenacting what an actual attack would be like and then contrasting it with clips of talking heads of experts talking about things and then contrasting this sort of cacophony of human suffering with the um, the sort of somnolent calm of Bishops. expert yes.
1: Bishop saying, I think on the whole, God's been on our side.
2: We're going down a little kind of alleyway now between some people's it. houses. A it, there?
3: Yeah.
2: By a shed clean up after your dog 80 pound fine but i mean to to make on this series, lovely blossom because the spring
1: the spring is here we carrying out blossom on the bow <laughs> but it's
2: this this very tasteful delicate cultivated world of little flats and people's recycling bins all of this can be gone in a minute still yeah because we live under this
1: umbrella of imminent nuclear destruction hmm. stands the church clock at 10 to 3
3: i think we need to turn around somewhere oh there's a road yes and we've
2: now as is often the case and is on brand for us, we no, are... we are
3: actually a today. We? we are... we up that way. So we're, we're sublimely
2: beyond. lost. I mean, we often go off at a tangent in our conversation and our train of thought, but we have, on this occasion, literally gone off on a tangent. We've walked down a cul-de-sac and we're now quite lost.
1: Normally fainting another cul-de-sac. Well, we're not lost, with us, we know sort of where we are I and mean, we know how that will eventually connect to everything
2: well I w- would uh, I mean at the risk of sounding pretentious wouldn't uh, Walter Benjamin one of the godfathers of psychogeography at this point say Paris taught him the art, to, the art of uh, getting lost
3: I'm going huh. to suggest we wander back are we sure okay,
1: um, but I, I think can we just look at the map at this point, cause I think if we follow this we will come somewhere
3: I would feel more like we're taking a journey.
1: I know now there's a dead end here
3: as well. We found a cul de sac and a cul de sac and a cul de sac.
2: Okay. A cul de sac and a cul de sac and a cul de sac. Yeah. This inception nativity calendar's crap.
1: Little. And the point is, it would all fall down.
2: Yeah. All these these strings of, of uh, crosses St George with the sun livery on them.
1: All of these trees would be ablaze.
2: It's um, I mean, this is a light-hearted show, but I, it's quite upsetting. And is the way that we deal with the issues that Pete Watkins is raising in the war game
1: keep calm and carry, carry on?
2: on. It's, yeah, it's just to kind of make it into a joke and have a bit of a a cheeky laugh. And you know, I'm just as guilty of it in in uh, caroling this show, but actually, we should take this seriously. And well. I think we should also take the possibility that what Russia and other governments are doing in terms of using uh, computers and the fact we've all got computers in our pockets on our phones, we should take the risk of that kind of warfare being step one and perhaps a nuclear exchange being. I mean, Andrew, you, you think about this all day professionally as a press officer at Campaign Against the Arms Trade. Mm. Would it be a fair summation? Obviously, I mean, this is asking you to come up with quite a huge sweeping analysis based on very little evidence which is quite unfair but my but my impression is that the risk of nuclear warfare today in you know sort of late may early June 2018 is remote but still possible
3: oh, it is still possible um, especially when there is large nuclear arsenals with Um, particularly of states and leaders who are unpredictable. And uh, what we have to remember is also that they have been used before um, and did lead to untold destruction, and their response to that was to build more and more of these weapons. Yes. (laughs) Which, too... I think a lot of people it would seem like kind of the wrong response. That so it would be where you think, oh, God, we really should get rid of this technology, not we should invest in more of it. Yeah. Um, and it has been interesting because uh, I remember even at the last election, the nuclear issue was still coming up time and again. We always heard about how Jeremy Corbyn was going to get rid of the nukes and Britain would get taken over by russians or any other foreign invader at that point um and so that sort of argument of nuclear deterrence is still so with interestingly us
1: the daily mail argument against corbyn was well the americans would just have to take us over to protect us <laughs> it, was,
3: it was a it's a crazy one but that whole argument about deterrence hasn't really gone away and in scotland where you um, yeah i live have in the five of yeah and where I used to have pleasure of living. Um, yeah, because you are
2: Scottish, I had noticed from your accent.
3: I am indeed. Um, and uh, well, I think my accent might have come, become a bit stronger since I moved down here, actually. It might be a rebellion thing. But I've got, I mean,
2: conversely, I've got more geezerish <laughs> now I've moved there. <laughs> Should yeah. we
3: swap accents some point? Yeah, um, all right. But, it, but it's that thing where uh, the, the whole issue's never really gone away in Scotland, because it's so tied to the independence referendum yes. as well. Um, the whole issue of Trident and nuclear weapons.
2: And there is this question of what, I mean, this is a whole other discussion for a different programme, but obviously uh, Alex Salmon, or as people are calling him in Scotland sometimes rancorously and in a ribble fashion, of course, Alexei Salmon has got a show on Rush Today on Russian state television. Uh, Sputnik has opened an office in Edinburgh. I mean, Vladimir Putin seemed quite uninterested in Scotland quite uninterested in the nuclear submarine pens in Fastlane, not that far from where I live, just the other side of that kind of narrow bit of the, the neck of of Great Britain, and the, the kind of Scotland's the head, then where we live is the, is the, the neck. Mm. Well, I'm living on you know the back of the neck, and Fastlane's the throat.
1: And, um, and where are you living? What are you living on? Borrowed time. time.
3: What well, I'm going to challenge slightly, but... Yeah. And I'd like to yeah, be no, interested in yeah, yeah. your opinion on yeah. this. is for, for context, before South Park turned rubbish, it did a really interesting <laughs> episode about 9-11, which was um, where they um, were looking at 9-11 conspiracy theorists yeah, and yeah. came to a conclusion that the conspiracy theories, the conspiracy theorists were working for the government in order to make people think that they were powerful enough to have carried out 9-11. it's quite ingenious. Um, but um, one... Thing which comes to mind about sort of RT and Sputnik and so on, is actually their ratings are at very low. I'm not yeah. endorsing the content, yeah. but it does worry me that they get an awful lot of press coverage which makes them look a lot more powerful than I think they are, and I think Putin probably quite <laughs> likes the idea of the media in Britain underestim- uh, to overestimating the importance and influence of what are actually in the great scheme of things that not particularly mainstream stations
2: and you I mean I think you're making a very salient point you can hear again now we're back in the uh, now we're talking about
3: when we were lost in the, the, the propaganda <laughs> power
2: of uh, Vladimir Putin and now we're back on the Caledonian Road uh, heading towards King's Cross so we've got the traffic noise as well but you're making a very good point and Sirkov who's Putin's seem to be Putin's kind of key advisor. Uh, certainly as regards this kind of psychological aspects of hybrid warfare, his technique appear I mean, it's kind of a, a bit glib to come up with a kind of off-the-cuff, off you know, one-paragraph analysis of the entire Russian government approach towards psychological <laughs> warfare worldwide. But if one could condense it to a couple of lines, it seems to be to back both sides, cause confusion, and then let people know that you were the one that caused confusion. So in terms of Britain's nuclear deterrent and going into the future uh, I think you're making a very sound point which is actually the the purpose of having Alex Salmon on Russian tele- state television the purpose of having this sort of nominally independent news agency Sputnik which is actually just a front for the FSB is just to kind of make people think that they've got influence and in a way it's kind of George Clinton rules Is you know this, how did Parliament Funkadelic Become such an important uh, musical combo is they acted like they had a hit the whole time, you know. If you if you act like you know you're you're the disco godfather, Vladimir Putin is the disco godfather, then you are the disco godfather. Well,
3: it reminds me of a tip I got given for job interview, which was don't dress for the job you've got, dress for the one you want, Um, and it's actually quite a similar sort of mindset. The best way to make people to Look powerful is to have other people say, tell people that you're powerful. Um, and I kind of always imagine that, whether even if we ass- even if we were to assume that uh, there was no evidence to suggest any of the Russian bots or retweet or Twitter stuff or anything like that had any discernible impact on U.S. elections, it would be massively in the interest of Vladimir Putin for people to think it did. Hmm. If that, if that makes sense.
2: And isn't there also an argument that if the name of the game for, the Ru- for Vladimir Putin and the Russian state, are, are, you know, perceived to be our main opponent now, rather than Islamic fundamentalism. If the name of the game for Russia is to influence people, then Roz isn't uh, an all-out nuclear exchange. There's a sort of finality to that, really, isn't there? Yes. Well,
1: I mean, it's the real worry is this: it's the it's the assumption that everything that some people are going to make. But well, at least if we all die, that would be clean. Yeah. It's that whole way that in 1914, everyone was worried about decadence and degeneracy, and they thought that the worst thing that could possibly happen was more music like Rite of Spring and cultural... Occult, and, and queer culture and... Oh, my God, the endless Stravinsky. Yes. And Will it ever fact, stop? And, in fact, I mean, you bloody ballet ruse. They thought it should go, you know, that quick war all over by Christmas and it was the worst thing that ever happened probably.
2: Certainly loads of poets died. Yeah. Probably quite a few ballet dancers and uh, impresarios, potential impresarios
3: It's always been much easier to start a war than it is to get out of it.
2: Yes Well, I mean, as the war in Iraq has demonstrated really, we're still there It's
3: amazing to think that that war began 15 years ago and we're still living with the consequences of it now and will be for many years to come. I mean,
1: when did the Afghan war begin? 1830? Arguably, I mean, you know, we, just took, you know, we just took over the, war, the wars between the, 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 the Delhi Sultanate and yeah. the, the, uh, the dynasty that was in charge of Iran at that, that point, at some point in the 15th century. There's always been an Afghan war.
3: But to say a few warm words about Housemans, which we're going to be coming up for down the line. Housemans is an independent bookshop, it's an independent political bookshop as well. And you don't get many like it anymore, do you? you Even thinking about London's independent bookshops, there's not that many. Thinking about it's independent political bookshops, I think there's only two or three and Housemans would
1: be the best one. But actually Housemans has also been it's actually not a party bookshop.
3: Oh, precisely, because everyone I was thinking of is Bookmarks, which is run by the Socialist Workers' Party, so we therefore shouldn't go there. Uh, there are very, very few of these kind of political spaces. And one of the things that's just been great about Houseman's is that it's also served as an incubator for yeah. some really good groups. Because um, actually. It was also it was
1: upstairs, uh, the, for a long time, the uh, Lesbian and Gay Switch Was it now? I yeah. did not know that. I that's, that's a
3: campaign against arms Street, actually. Well,
2: so there is. One, when I was researching the Scala map and when I put. Um, Houseman's Bookshop at you know the Caledonia Road tube station. One of the stories I unearthed was this story that um, the IRA once bombed the postbox outside Houseman's Bookshop and it was full of the first ever newsletter of your employers, Andrew, campaign against the arms trade. It
3: was. The first ever issue of Cat News where was uh, blown to pieces. Um. By Fenians. <laughs> Well, um, it was... uh, It didn't... uh, So, unfortunately, that piece of history was... Other than a few copies we have left, that piece of history was destroyed. So lots of uh, subscribers didn't get it. Uh, Thankfully, no other issues have been subsequently blown up, but...
2: That you know
3: of. No, but it's the most violent ending you can come up with for a um, peace organisation's literature.
2: But it demonstrates uh, the... I mean, we're actually, we're looking at a lovely red post box right now, not that far from Harrison's bookshop. Perhaps even the replacement for the postbox that was blown up by the IRA. So Had oh, yeah. right,
1: okay.
3: we not taken that long detail? Phenomenal detail, yeah. admittedly is kind of my fault. I feel like I should say for background, actually, for sure, that the way we know each other, Tim, is... Yeah. Arms trade, yeah, isn't it? because I'm
2: still I still do journalism about Nigeria. I'm still very concerned about the arms trade and its impacts on human rights. So I've kind of got professional interest in the sense that uh, the arms trade is a- has a big impact on Nigeria and my my gig, such as it is, as I write about Nigeria yeah. and uh, political corruption there. And then we met because, uh, because of uh, arms sales to Nigeria. Yeah, because of Vince Cable approving the sale of seven armoured speedboats that had been the Norwegian Coast Guard speedboats and were accidentally whoops, sold to uh, Tom Polo, who many people say is involved in organised crime in, Ni- in the Niger Delta. I couldn't possibly comment. Yeah.
3: Yes, and then those boats which we were told had been were not militarised, were then located tracked down by the Nigerian government. At that point it had guns refitted. Um,
2: yeah, they'd, they'd taken the the, the bolt placements off uh, at the Norwegian end and then they just welded them back on.
3: Precisely and the, in this, Nigeria. What was really interesting about that case was that it kind of underpinned, the, you can have all the rhetoric you want about responsible systems and um, how rigorous and robust arms export controls supposedly are and blah blah blah, but at the end of the day the, uh, the reality is very different um, and in that case it wasn't like there was even any money being made by anyone, which made it all more spellbindingly like awful that the Went ahead. There was just people
1: not looking at the paperwork in enough detail.
2: Now we, we know that these, um, and we kind of got off the issue of nuclear arms, but we are not still on really. the issue of peace. Um,
1: but how do we think that, I mean, the fact that the fairly crap nuclear weapons that this country has? have for a long time been sold to us by the Americans, or leased to us by the Americans, which doesn't mean they're any good
2: Yes, I mean it's the the way in which the arms trade, you know, once the initial deal's been done there are deals within deals and you know, endless recycling of weapons as well. And
1: endless refinancing. It's also
3: something thing where we don't where when a sale's made, we don't know how those weapons will be used in the future. It was one thing which is one of the various horror stories which has come out of the Saudi-led bombardment of Yemen over the last three this years. This is with
2: these uh, Paveway 4 missiles.
3: Yes, they're using a lot of UK fighter jets and UK bombs, but in particular, the regime was found to have used cluster bombs, mm. um, which at first it denied when Amnesty International said well here's the evidence and then they admitted that they were lying and had been using them all along but anyway, um, the main thing to point out about the cluster bombs is they were sold in the 1980s yeah. now that only underpins the point that the lifespan of a weapon is so much longer than the lifespan of uh, the political situation we're sold into and when that sale was made in the 1980s I'll bet nobody thought they would one day be used in a village in Yemen yeah. and yet they were Um, and it's the arms sales being done today we don't know how they're going to be used in the future we don't know what atrocities they could be implicated in for decades to come
2: I mean I have to say on this very nice spring day walking down this very busy North London Street full of humanity full of human beings going about their lives full of love, full of meaning the fact that it can all just stop quite suddenly and not necessarily be stopped by a nuclear weapon. I mean, they could stop
1: by someone driving down the street with an AK-47
2: or knifing somebody. I mean, there's a big yeah. problem now with knife crimes come back in London and acid attacks. Well,
3: this is a bit broadcast of doom and gloom, isn't it? Well, but I think. But the thing is, well, so
2: this is what I want to talk about next. So I'm going to play this clip from Pete Watkins. Very interesting film. It's about 45 minutes long. So I would really recommend people take the time to watch it. When I was a kid. We were traumatised by threads, and the day after...
1: When I was a kid, I was traumatised by the Cuban Missile Crisis. the
2: actual thing. Um, There's another film in that idiom from the 80s, which often gets overlooked, by the dawn's early light. Ah. Which I'll play a bit of in a minute, with James Earl Jones saving the world. As... the uh, person flying the vice-president's plane and the only guy with a clue who can stop a nuclear exchange.
3: But there's no shortage of films involving presidents and presidents' men saving lives, is there? There's always Harrison Ford films where he was president of the United States. Yeah, Air Force One. He was saving the world, wasn't he? Yes. <laughs> Independence Day, that was another one. President played a pretty hands-on role. <laughs> one thing for all these films have in common though is that they're all terrible. <laughs> Well, I mean, the the BBC
2: did play Pete Watkins, The War Game, in 1985, and they played it the day before uh, a repeat broadcast of Threads. So I'm going to play some clips now to get us in this quite sombre and mordant mood of all these things you can hear in the background, which, you know, it's a bit irritating when you're living it and there's lots of traffic noise and bustle but uh, it could all go in a second so here are clips from Thread from the day after by the dawn's early light and also Ros I thought we could play a bit of uh, Fred Astaire on the beach okay
1: not tap dancing on the beach
2: not ta- no the, the on the beach, of course, was, was uh, Fred showing his acting chops and very, yeah. very impressive and uh, poignant that film is too. Yeah. Jesus Christ, the have
4: Where are you going? We're try to get to Bruce. all right.
0: I urge. ...offering maximum shelter protection from radioactive fallout... ...and to obey all local curfews. We are counting on you, on your strength, your patience... ...your will and your courage to help rebuild this great nation of ours. God bless you all.
5: That's it? That's all he's gonna say?
1: Hey, maybe we're gonna be okay. What do you want to hear?
5: I want to know who started it, who fired first, who preempted.
1: You're never going to know that. What difference does it make? He doesn't know how badly we were here. He hit sure would have what told us that, that they would have fired bad. first. That's he right. doesn't want anyone to think we lost the war.
4: <laughs> you believe that? You believe everything they tell you? Doctor,
1: wait, wait, wait. You know what Einstein said about World War Three. He said he didn't know how they were going to fight World War Three, but he knew how they would fight World War IV. Sticks and stones.
0: General,
5: it's the president, sir. General, I have the Kremlin on the line. His people are monitoring the E-4 transmission. You have three, maybe four minutes. Can you do it in that time?
6: No, sir, I cannot. you understand what this means? Yes, sir. He's hopeless? Well, sir, the E-4 pilot makes a mistake, slips up, maybe, but he won't. I know him. He's good. Right now, he sees himself pursued by a madman.
5: General. Sir. Against your wishes, I'm going to thank you. Not all our people's programming was faulty. I
7: might as well
0: run a railway train through here. I beg your pardon? There's no need to frighten all the animals. Sorry, sorry. Hello, hello. Admiral told me I'd find you here. I thought you might want to have a look at this report of mine before I have it typed. Sure, it'll be all right.
4: Well, you don't have to be so noisy about it. Cows won't give any milk for a week.
0: He just said that. So this is the Ferrari. What'll she do? We don't really know yet. But I'll find out on Saturday. (laughs) You are coming to the race, aren't you? Well, I'd like to. Be much of a crowd? Oh, I shouldn't think so. It's a question of transport for most people. Besides...
2: Well, so cares. I'm going to play this clip now from Pete Watkins, The War Game, where one of these talking heads is explaining to us really a certain nature of humanity that leads to the outcome of nuclear war.
0: Technically and intellectually, we are living in an atomic age. Emotionally, we are still living in the Stone Age. The Aztecs on their feast days would sacrifice 20,000 men to their gods in the belief that this would keep the universe on its proper course. We feel superior to them.
2: So, Andrew and Ross, I found this quote from a book uh, which I got a lot from. I, I would recommend this to, to check it out. Cheering's Cathedral which is a history oh, right. of how the Los Alamos project which developed nuclear weapons uh, ended up having a big influence on the invention of modern digital technology and so this is the author george dyson talking about this connection between i suppose destruction and creation but also the the two technologies the technology of nuclear weapons but also the technology of computers numerical simulation of chain reactions within computers initiated a chain reaction among computers with machines and codes proliferating as explosively as the phenomenon they were designed to help us understand. It is no coincidence that the most destructive and the most constructive of human inventions appeared at exactly the same time. Only the collective intelligence of computers could save us from the destructive powers of the weapons they had allowed us to invent. And the point he's making there is that that the viability of many nuclear weapons was established by simulating them and the The money that the US military put into developing computer technology has not only left us with this this inheritance of of huge nuclear arsenals that are this perpetual threat to the existence of all life on Earth, but we kind of don't really talk about and don't really pay much attention to. And we're much more fussed about the other threat, the threat from everybody having computers in their pockets and trolling each other and sending each other nasty tweets and doxing oh. one another and all this kind of stuff and as it's turned out John Crudus he's against it well if John Crudus is against it I think we should take it seriously
1: oh. it might be a John Crudus is really worried about artificial intelligence
3: a lot of people have always been worried about artificial intelligence and even if we think about um, the way that films have depicted artificial
1: intelligence which and robotics over the years which the other film called War Games yeah <laughs>
3: yeah that, um, we've always had that kind of slip paranoid relationship with technology as it's been developed, um, and there's always been that. Even, even thinking through like the old Doctor Who's and so on, you're thinking about technology always being something which has been quite scary for us in pop culture. Yeah. Um, and certainly now that it's become more personalised, and what used to take up a whole space on a desk is now fits into all of our pockets. Um, it means the Big Brother fantasies seem all the more real.
2: A point I wanted to make to both of you and, and see what you think of this is the risk posed both by nuclear weapons but also by psychological warfare, hybrid warfare using social media and other digital technologies. I wonder if the connection is to do with the age of the users that The thing about trolls on the internet, or the thing about people using social media to perhaps distort or affect the outcome of referenda, or in America's case, the US presidential elections, it's to do with people in their 40s or 50s or older, who didn't grow up with computers, who didn't grow up with the internet, using it in a kind of Hostile way or an aggressive way, which which I mean, any sort of rational, common sense person would know can't possibly end well. But I and mean, it was funny I was talking to, to Shruti my other half, who's sometimes on the show, about this particular dichotomy of you know the fact that the technology which can save us can also destroy us. And she was saying about her students because she'd done some teaching this year, this academic year. Her feeling about her students, who are you know 19, 20, 21 is they're basically all right. I mean, they're basically not—they're good. You know, they're good people. They're good kids. And I—I I tend to agree with her. I think that people who have grown up with social media, in particular, or with the internet generally, and have not known a world as you and I do, Ros, yeah, before the internet, they—they they don't know a world
1: where. Well, the thing is that if you have social media since you were four you kind of got past using it aggressively because of the consequences.
3: I think I'm probably too old to be a millennial insofar as I can remember a world before social media and before mobile phones and things like that. But we always hear about this idea of millennials being at snowflakes gets thrown around by um, the right wing, who incidentally I might as well add are probably usually used by some of the most easily offended thin-skinned people in the world um, who uh, use terms like that but we're always sold this image as millennials of being sort of folk who will spend a a fortune on avocado and sourdough bread or whatever Um, but in reality we're actually talking about a generation which is generally actually fairly engaged in things
2: quite intelligent, quite sensitive quite sort of culturally Literate, quite mindful of other people's feelings, the sensitivities and the feelings of the people around them. I mean, this has been my experience really since the Occupy protests, which were a total waste of time. I mean, to be entirely fair, uh, Ros and I went down there a couple of times. It was before I was making radio stuff. But um, I thought was ultimately a bit of a kind of camping exercise. But the earlier phases of it, where you had all the kind of art squats, the thing that was very impressive about that culture of radicalism, that culture of protest, which is perhaps quite removed from Houseman's Bookshop and the kind of peace movement culture that, that we're talking about today, that art process culture is one which is reflexively inclusive of gender, of sexuality, of race, of religion, of ability and disability, and basically any widget of, of identity politics you can think of. They're up for it. And I see these usually recent graduates so those of twenty-one, 22, they'd squat a building and they would just reflexively build a, a ramp <laughs> because they've got a mate in a wheelchair and so he or she could
3: then get into the building it's, in, in, some ways it's a, I mean, in some ways it's a different peace movement because the, when we think back to the peace movements of uh, the sixties, we always think of them as being A. very London centric B. very white Yes um, it, and Seaver's always that kind of more typecast hippie vibe. This might just be because of the way these fit movements are depicted, as much as the reality. But it certainly feels like uh, nowadays there is more focus um, in terms of intersectionality and how different issues overlap with each other. Yeah. Um, and I think in that regard, it's a different piece of movement. Part of that is because of social media. It's introduced people to a lot of um, communities that. Uh, like people can take part in online communities in a way which you obviously couldn't see internet and you can have people identifying in the same sorts of ways as each other finding people who feel the same way who happen to be at other parts of the country other parts of the world and it can be such a great organizational tool as well I mean to, to I mean people mock Twitter but it did play a part in almost bringing down the Iranian government um, a few years ago yeah. To reflect on George
2: Dyson's quote that I I read out earlier, only the collective intelligence of computers could save us from the destructive powers of the weapons they had allowed us to invent. Well, what if, in a sense, our aggression is step one in weaponising humanity's inability to see a way of living peacefully, a way of um, coexisting with people who are different from us? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I mean, isn't the isn't the continuity that an institution like Houseman's Bookshop, which we're quite near now, um, it's you can almost see it now, yeah. It's yeah. Fa- it's founded on the idea that all these this myriad of humanity. I mean, how many different pe- kinds of people have we walked past in the last hour, speaking different languages of different religions? We
1: walked Did- past an restaurant.
2: I mean, there you go. This this an is, Ethiopian restaurant. This is Patchwork London, and. I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is, is the the, the, the means mosque? of a mosque, yeah. A means of the means of our destruction and the means of our perseverance and our resilience are sort of inextricably bound together in the technology. It's the technology that's really interesting, I think.
3: Well, there's also, I mean, it's not just technology. It has good and bad. It's also ideas. And the, uh, the quote which always comes to mind when you're talking about something being having good and bad qualities is. For one I think was Jimmy Reid um, whoever it was, I'm sure it was Jimmy Reid talking about nationalism describing it as being a bit like electricity, it can either um, keep a baby alive in an incubator or put a man to death in a chair yeah. and I think it's a very good quote and, so, and what it brings up is that wherever it is rough wherever there's uh, smooth is also rough there's good and bad sides to a lot of it um,
2: and of course George Dyson's father Freeman Dyson uh, was involved in the Orion Project, which was an attempt to use nuclear technology not to destroy mankind, but to propel mankind at staggering speed through the cosmos, and had the Orion Project gone ahead, it would have meant there would be, and this is a a real thing, I mean this is, you know, it was a a funding issue, not an engineering issue, Uh, there would be probably human colonies on moons of Saturn by now. Using an odd the Orion thought, spaceship, isn't it? How could have been. but we 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 forget perhaps too quickly. Roz, no. feel free to disagree with me if you want to. But we forget too quickly that nuclear technology is also the only means by which we could actually viably travel beyond this solar system within uh, astronauts' lifetimes.
1: At this point, yes, but um, somehow the idea of a rocket that moves forward by letting off atomic weapons behind itself. <laughs> I this, mean, this pop
2: noise, the, the model of it goes pop, 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 as it flies off into the air.
1: And when we meet aliens, <laughs> they go there goes the neighbourhood.
3: <laughs> but it is an interesting thing thinking about in the future whether or not nuclear, pe- nuclear weapons will still be with us and for how long. Um, because every time you hear a, when governments are asked if they will Downscale their tried and or, what, or nuclear weapons or whatnot. We always hear the same thing, which is that they want multilateral disarmament. And to bring about multilateral disarmament, we need to buy more weapons. We need to build more weapons so that we've got more to negotiate with. And the end result of that is just everybody builds more weapons, yeah. and then nobody disarms any of these weapons. Um, and uh, uh, so it becomes quite a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. And by the end of it, doesn't it? You've just got this mass accumulation of weapons. But the other logical extension of the same argument is that the only thing which could bring about world peace is every single country in the world having nuclear weapons, and I don't really want to take that risk. No, it does seem (laughs) quite risky. Um, It's the same people who tell us that we need nuclear weapons to preserve peace, who, um, on the other hand, would tell us we can't let Iran have nuclear weapons. Now, as it happens, I don't think Iran should have nuclear weapons, but it does Huge, I don't think anyone should, but it does hugely concern me when we're told we need to have our nuclear weapons to stop them from getting nuclear weapons.
2: Yes, it, I mean, the logic of it is a bit cockeyed, isn't it? And there's Heisman's. There's Heisman's. Ross, we're now approaching Heisman's Bookshop, yes, and uh, this would be an appropriate time, I think, for a music break. Should we listen to a bit of Tom Lehrer?
1: Why not?
6: When you attend a funeral... It is sad to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same for you. And you may have thought it tragic not to mention other adjectives to think of all the weeping they will do. But don't you worry. No more ashes, no more sackcloth, and an armband made of black cloth will someday never more adorn a sleeve, for if the bomb that drops on you, gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to grieve and we will all go together when we go, what a comforting fact that is to know, universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement, yes we all will go together when we go. Well, that was Tom Lehrer. We'll all go together when we go.
2: Sung by your own, your very own, Mr. Tom Lehrer. Who also, I love his um, Werner von Braun song.
6: Actually, should we just play a little bit of that as well? Yes. yes. Twenty billion dollars of your money to put some clown on the moon. <laughs> well, it was good old American know-how. That's what, as provided by good old Americans like Dr. Werner von Braun. <laughs> Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun A man whose allegiance Is ruled by expedience Call him a Nazi He won't even frown <laughs> Nazi schmazi Says Werner von Braun <laughs> Don't say that he's hypocritical Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. (laughs) Some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widow's. So, Andrew,
2: we're standing here outside Housen's bookshop, and of course, the building we're facing is. The Scala Cinema, Ros. Yeah,
1: the Scala Cinema. For
2: two years we've been talking about the Scala. We interviewed Steve Woolley, used to run it, and Jane and uh, Helen DeWitt. And now here we actually are with Andrew. So there's a kind of wonderful syn- synchronicity.
1: I don't think I ever got laid inside the Scala Cinema, but I was. But those were the days when one couldn't be sure. Well, uh, no, there's a snooker hall in there now, isn't there? And it's a music venue
2: as well. So, Andrew, um, it's really been... It's always good fun talking to you, but it's uh, a particular pleasure sharing the airways with you. Yes, it's been a lot
3: of fun. Thank you very much. And
2: with a kind of Blue Peter type ending and wink to camera, perhaps we'll be seeing a little bit more of Andrew Smith in the future, do you think? Do you think, boys and girls?
5: Hello, I'm Peter Watkins. I arrived here in Paris about a week ago to complete the editing of the abridged version of La Commune. And I discovered for the first time that 13 productions, the French film company which produced La Commune with me in 1999, is directly involved with the French multinational corporation Le Gardaire. Now, Le Gardaire is a vast empire, kind of huge spider's web involving many French and international organisations via complex patterns of partnership, stocks and shares, ownership, uh, links, direct and indirect, direct with other companies and so on. But significant amongst the things produced by the companies working with Le Gardaire's capital are weapons of war. Such as the armaments produced by Matthias. I'm
8: your master of war. You did build the big guns. You did build the death planes. You did build all the bombs. You hide behind walls. I want you to know I can read through your mask. You've never done nothing but build to destroy. You play with my world like it's your own little toy. You put a gun in my hand and you hide from my eyes. Turn and run father when the fast bullets fly. Like Judy Savo. My dreams. You've thrown the worst fear. I can't ever be hurled. There to bring children into the world. For oh, threatening my baby. I'm born and
2: So you can hear me now walking in off the street on Canadonia Road into the book-lined basement of Houseman's Bookshop. And here is Ros. So we had a lovely musical break there. You heard Bob Dylan's Masters of War, which is quite appropriate given the uh, importance of Houseman's Bookshop to the peace movement over the decades. And then there was quite a long bit of some quite highbrow heavy duty classical music but we like to give our listeners a variety of music on Music for Films Ross can you speak in an entertaining and informative way about
1: that piece of music well Pendereck is an interesting figure because he was someone who was always the right man in the right place at the right time I mean he's now as of 2018 in the eighties, which meant that he had finished his music studies by the time Stalinism was over, which meant that he could engage in a moderate degree of experimentalism without getting caught up in being expected to do socialist realism. Um, And yet he also uh, had the opportunity, because he was Polish, to combine... A lot of avant-garde gestures with a fair degree of religious faith. I mean he's one of his most famous works is St. Luke Passion. Interestingly, as post-communist Poland has drifted towards the right, he's announced his return to a degree of traditionalism in his work. Um, because after all, he's become worried, he says, that the avant-garde gestures with which he was in love in his youth and maturity have now become um, a, langu- a globalist language. So, I mean, I'm keeping an eye on that because that could be, indicate something quite interesting about the direction of Poland's future. But we shall see. And what's the title of that track? Serenity for the Victims of Hiroshima was the its eventual title, though originally he was simply going to call it by its time duration. Which is six minutes, eight minutes, thirty-three seconds, or whatever. But he, he opted for Trinity, and of course it's had a,
2: another life recently because it's in Twin Peaks: The Return. So it is. Where we, where we, I think they used a, a GoPro camera on a, um, a what well, people say a drone. It's not a drone, but let's just call it a drone. A GoPro camera on a drone. I think they flew it up into fireworks or something. But we kind of saw the 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 etheric metaphysical aftermath of a nuclear test in the uh, New Mexico desert and we saw how uh, the personification of evil in the Twin Peaks universe that we now discover is not Bob is in fact Judy ah as as Bowie says in the uh, the Twin Peaks film now I'm not going to talk about Judy we're not going to talk about Judy at all well, now we are talking about Judy because she's there after that bit of music. Right. As a kind of weird, kind of glowing... God knows what she is. Being. Well, that's the... And then Bob you. sort of spurts out of her like Frogspawn. Hmm. He's a old bugger, David Lynch, isn't he? What's yeah. that all about?
1: I have no idea
2: because
1: I haven't seen the last few episodes.
2: But that episode... That, that, um, that utilisation of that piece of music, and I understand he planned the entire episode around that piece of music it's um it's one of those things that once seen cannot be unseen that's true much like other films to do with nuclear annihilation which certainly traumatized me as a kid threads the day after by the dawn's only light of course let's not forget where the wind blows mm. uh raymond brick the animated cartoon of raymond Briggs children's mm. book
1: is essentially in lots of ways the, show, the, the the kids version of the war game very much so because it's all about people thinking they can keep calm and carry on when they can't
2: that Twin Peaks episode is a, a kind of a footnote or a kind of dot 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 from this small idiom of films about everybody dying but not through a zombie holocaust through a very real and politically plausible
1: scenario of nuclear annihilation. Yes, well, I mean, one of the things the war game does is uh, is just show a process of escalation. The Chinese invade Vietnam, as indeed they did some, some years later in rather different context. The Russians move into West Berlin. The Americans try and force a passage into West Berlin. And both sides threaten to use tactical nukes and eventually do at which point the logic of the Soviet nuclear arsenal says that they take use everything they've got pointed at Britain because if they don't it will get wasted because it will get hit by British bombers on the ground so they use everything and destroy Britain and that's part part of the point of the war game let's not forget it's not Uh, Propaganda against nuclear war alone. It's propaganda against Britain's involvement with the with nuclear war, because it's saying, for as long as we have nuclear weapons here or stationed here, we are guaranteed to all die. Because it's a small island and there are just too many targets in it. I mean, one of the one of the most telling bits of, uh, of um, the war game is the bit where it shows us all of the places where V-bombs are stationed all of the big cities that would be tactical targets and then all of the areas that would be hopelessly contaminated by fallout and then it takes the few fertile areas and scribbles over them in black crayon saying and of course the wind blows those simple lecturing bits are one of the most effective things about the war game because it just says quite quietly this is lunacy as indeed it was, as indeed it is um, it doesn't argue because it is possible that America that Russia might survive nuclear war in some some sort of condition great britain and ireland are gone mm. it is as simple as that goodbye Strip one yeah there is no airstrip one and no no ireland either because ireland's too mm.
2: near and it does really put our concerns about brexit in some sort of broader context which is the economic and political effects of leaving a political union which is what the EU is becoming, let's face it, uh, make war more likely. Yes.
1: Because what happens if Brexit gets really unseemly and we get an unstable right-wing right wing Prime Minister in this country who has the bright idea of using nuclear threats to negotiate with Europe?
2: Naming no names, Jacob Rees-Morgan.
1: More Boris Johnson. Or
2: Boris Johnson. And for the podcast version, do we have a special message for Jacob rees and Boris Johnson? or Just no. We can't even bring ourselves to swear at you. That's how much contempt we hold
1: those people in. Because they will kill us all. Well, I mean, I think it's significant that Nigel Lawson's sodding off to live in France. Because there's not much fallout in La France profonde. In uh,
2: this series of programmes we've made for residents, and which you can also find online, uh, we do a two-hour podcast version called More Music for Films, which you can find at thebeekeepers.com uh, or your podcasting application of choice. Uh, in these programmes, we have talked about Undernight Streets and we've talked about the risk to the general public of Accidents and fires on the underground We've made a programme with Pat Mills Talking about It Happened Here Kevin Brownlow's film Which in many ways shares a similar tone And uh, sensibility to The War Game I put it to you That I don't think Pete Watkins Although he Has made a groundbreaking film In Culloden and The War Game In terms of realistically depicting What conflict is like And how it affects people
1: my God, there's an awful lot of c- c- golden section in every single one of his shots. They're beautifully framed, aren't they? They're too beautifully framed. They're too beautifully framed to be p- to, to be credible as the pseudo doc. And also, but they uh, are actually because you know you just go, hmm, I can draw so many golden sections on that picture. Do
2: you know another connection between uh, the beautiful qualities of, of Pete Watkins, The War Game, and another one of the, our programs? Do you remember uh, when we made that lovely programme? I think actually the best programme that we've done together, which is when we went to uh, the Granada Bingo Hall in Tutu. Oh, yes. Angela Carter's favourite cinema. Yes. We walked up those stairs and there was a plaque which had been unveiled by Michael Aspel. Ask Aspel. Well, you know who's reading some of the quotes in the war game?
1: No. It's Michael Aspel. Good Lord.
2: Ask Aspel. Aspel,
0: are we all going to die? And the answer is, yes. Yes. During a recent meeting of the Ecumenical Council at the Vatican, an English and an American bishop expressed the view that the church must tell the faithful that they should learn to live with, though need not love, the nuclear bomb, provided that it is clean and of a good family. (coughs) At seven-tenths of a millisecond after the explosion... And at a distance of 60 miles, the light from the fireball of a single megaton thermonuclear device is 30 times brighter than the midday sun. This little boy has received severe retinal burns from an explosion 27 miles away. One
1: of the most telling things is is this shot, and they're they're talking to this crying child, and you suddenly realise that what's in front of him isn't a half-burned log, it's his arm his arm is just a complete lump of, lump of cracked, char- crack, cracked carbon
2: while there's a sort of let's well, still attached to him there's a kind of um, physical literality is that a phrase there's a physical literalness about a film like Night of the Living Dead I mean I think Night of the Living Dead although it's you know it's exploitation, a, a, exploitation film it's a beloved cult film it's been discussed and analysed endlessly and and is a terrific film and deserves a lot of discussion but even with the kind of grist and grittiness in George Romero's early directing I think there's a precision about the war game which is in fact not in a sort of tradition of exploitation filmmaking and you know sort of shock value it's much more in the tradition of Costa Gravas films like uh, uh, La
1: Capita Capitalism, but also Paul um,
2: Paul Greengrass, that United ninety three
1: film. Well, yes, but it's also in the tradition of of classic British documentary from the war. Humphrey Jennings. Humphrey Jennings. Fires were started. Fires were started, or, 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 or propaganda films from them, like Went the Day Well, because it's very much saying, because it takes the world of Went the Day Well and um, the the the, the Barnes Wallace film. And says no, that won't work anymore. That's done. It, it's it's certainly pluck will, you know, plucky ignorance will not get you through this. You know, if you don't understand what strontium ninety is, it's going to kill you. If you don't understand what carbon fourteen is, it's going to kill you. If you don't, if you think that, obviously, this country needs to retaliate against any Russian attack. That attitude is going to kill you.
2: So the voice of it, to me, is much more like um, the films we've mentioned. But also, London can take it. It's it's a call to action. It's a, it's it's a, it's demanding that the audience pays attention, and it shows you what the the in the case of you can take it—the effect of the Blitz—but Pete Watkins takes it that little bit further, which is he shows you the burnt arm, he shows you the corpses, he shows you—it's that little boy who gets blinded. I find that so upsetting.
1: Yeah. And then, um, and and then there's the stuff with where they—they're they, they're just killing the dying with the bullets. The yeah, brain. the police are putting people who can't be saved in the triage hospital out of their misery by just shooting them with a revolver. And then they're burning the bodies, but not letting people see it. And there's that bucket full of wedding rings they've taken from the dead in the hope of identifying them later.
2: And that very uncomfortable, kind of obvious association we have with the Holocaust. And
1: Mm. And it's saying, well, this is what happened at Dresden. So, you know, subtext, this is what we did to the Germans. You think we're immune from history?
2: Well... These are very serious and weighty subjects. and It's a
1: very, very tough-minded film. And it's, it doesn't let us have any comfort at all. I mean, within six weeks, all of these people, all of whom are going to die in any case, are killing each other for food. People are tearing cops apart for the, for the cops' rations. I mean, in fact, um, because it's 1964... It's not saying uh, the, you know the, the, the mob kills these policemen it is not they the mob kills these policemen and then eats them it's a tough watch it's a tough watch it could be a much tough I can imagine an even more accurate and much tougher tougher version it actually struck me that if they think that's upsetting everyone's unfailingly polite still
2: yeah imagine if they're all dissing each other on social media on top of it
1: well at least at least EMP would have seen to that there's always a consolation
2: (laughs) well you know we're still English we're still in London so we're making a joke out of it but it is all pretty grim and um, I think we should have a music break not for any particularly good reason other than I just think we need to have a Bit of a pause, yeah. Because it's a bit heavy. It he really is heavy and I do want people to watch this film, but it, you know, there's not a happy ending. It That's doesn't an, end well.
1: There is no happy ending.
7: i a I'll quit, and I got going Fuck, I'm gonna have to work, drink, I'm, I Let's go, look, look, got a diamond, treasure, lausoleum treatment, I'm well on my save, yes, I up, I'm trying
5: prophecies of what will portend the coming of Armageddon and so forth. Theologians for the last decade or more have believed that um, this was true, that the prophecies are coming together that portend that. But no one knows whether Armageddon, those prophecies mean that Armageddon is a thousand years away uh, or day after tomorrow. Now, with regard to having to say whether uh, we would try to survive in the event of a nuclear war, of course we would.
2: That was uh, a lovely compendium of music to, to... I mean, we've been talking about Pete Watkins' The War Game, and it is a depressing film, but uh, it shouldn't leave us depressed, I don't think, and certainly not here in the basement of Houseman's Bookshop, because this is It a, didn't
1: happen. It ha- might happen yet, but it hasn't happened for 50 years. That's something, right?
2: Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's although it has happened here in the sense that the things in the Kevin Brownlow film, arguably we are sort of veering towards fascism now. This is true. Um, It's pretty frightening to think we made that programme two years ago.
1: We were right. Yeah.
2: Well, I don't think we should be dismissive or make a joke out of the fact that there are still vast nuclear arsenals that can destroy humanity and possibly all life on this planet. I think, so for the the last bit of this programme, I'd like to try and channel what I think is the sentiment of those two uh, pieces of music that I chose, one of which was Death Grips giving bad people good ideas. You love a bit of angry West Coast industrial rap, don't you, Roz? Yeah, sure. You're all about it.
1: Yeah, right.
2: No, you love it.
1: Hmm. Uh,
2: but then also, of course, Africa Bambata and John yes. Lydon Time zone, world destruction. It's still it, you know now where, you're you're kinda of more old school rap than You pref, you prefer uh, you know Sulsonic Force or um Afrogamba to Kanye or Jay Z.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so Dr Johnson had something to say about that. Which was <laughs> about Jay Z. No there's there no there's no question of precedence between a louse and a flee <laughs> what i what i like
2: about um time zone is that there was a point in the 80s where john lyden coming okay. out of punk and african bamba who is still a very very important figure in yes. in, in hip hop and um i mean we talked in another podcast about the incredible bongo band who uh, did the music for the the, uh, two-headed, the incredible two-headed transplant, which is what their early stuff was recorded for but of course their recording of uh, Apache the Shadows hit, was the foundational anthem of the hip-hop nation and African Barbata was and DJ Cool Herc as part of that uh, block party culture of taking these Jamaican sound systems round the big housing estates uh, in the vicinity of Harlem and, and you know the Bronx and Queens and places like that was formative to a, a mode of hip hop and a mode of pop music which kind of dovetailed into CND and dovetailed into yes. the peace movement and it was nice at that time that we had John Lydon who was concerned about nuclear warfare and was What's taking true? a left wing stance rather than the one who thinks of Donald Trump as a possible friend. And that Brexit is, is the voice of the working classes and he is one of them. Yes. I'm, I like that, that John Lydon, that Johnny Rotten. I miss that one.
1: Yes, well, he was always the bad guy, really. I mean, I, I was never sold, I'm afraid.
2: Well, sometime this year, we, I think we're going to spend some of the rest of this year making more shows about the Scarlet Map in London and one of the ones I want to talk about is um, Who Killed Bambi? Yes. the Russ Mayer film that uh, Roger Ebert did the script for they never got around to making but um, it would have been good fun to see John Lydon being directed by Russ Mayer
1: yes that would have
2: been funny um, what I think those tracks embody is a sense of defiance, a sense of a quiet determination to oppose things which are wrong, inimical to the common good unkind Unfair, and we are literally surrounded. And the acoustic space in, in which we're recording this it's is lovely. Acoustic, beautiful physical books. Peace, nuclear energy, and weapons. And there are other shelves we've got:
1: Soviet military power, the annotated and corrected version of the Pentagon's guide,
2: feminism and gender behind your head mm. A whole, a whole bookcase of books about feminism and gender, which. Is as it should be, because of course it's a an important topic.
1: Yeah. Showing the nuclear arms race. So,
2: I mean, we've also talked about Darkly Wearing Golden Eyed and the old independent science fiction bookshops, which of course are very important to you in terms of yes. forming you both as a, as a writer and a reader. Um, and where
1: I used to sell review copies, don't forget.
2: But so, what was Houseman's a place that you? You came to for books, or was it a place that was kind of more of a rallying point for activism?
1: I didn't. I mean, no, because um, it was it was never my activism. Um, So no, sorry.
2: No, no, no. I mean, you don't need to apologise because I think it's very interesting, and I think it's worth while remembering that uh, in the culture of radicalism and activism, there are. Strands, strands, and antagonisms, and and you know, mods and rockers, and teds and spivs, and you know, not not everyone wants no. to play uh, everyone else's. Uh, I mean, in the eighties and
1: nineties, my independent bookstores were Forbidden Planet, Stroke Dart, they were, and uh, Gaze the Word. But when there are so few independent and Silver Moon, let's, tell us about Silver Moon. Silver Moon was the feminist bookstore on Cross Road. And it was really nice. And it had good coffee. In
2: 2018, making this programme in May, it'll probably go out in June, what's the importance and the significance of independent bookshops like this one that are not just a place to find new books on which one can... Um,
1: some sort of quality control, but also some sort of continuity. I mean, the fact that there are books... There are books here that are almost as old as I am probably um, no that's probably not literally well, true like that doesn't take that much Ross yeah. Um but it's the fact that there you know there's a book about being a cricket captain by Mike Brearley Victor
2: Molo Bridge in the Fourth Dimension Dracula Bram Stoker
1: you yeah would actually find things in here you wouldn't necessarily find anywhere else um, because one of the problems with the book trade in the age of the internet is that if you can't find it online you can't find it I mean talking about science fiction for a second it's all there are a lot of crucial books that haven't worn well there are also an awful lot of crucial books that no one under 35 has read because they just haven't been around. So there are entire themes that have disappeared from science fiction because none of the books... I mean, there was an entire subgenre of post-atomic war stories. Mm. How many people... Under 35 have even read A Canticle for Leibovitz. A great book. A great book. He had a huge impact on me. Yeah. Um, Let alone something like Henry Kuttner's Mutant Or. Yeah. Yes, I mean, and obviously the trouble with those books is they assumed there was a, a world after an atomic war. Though actually, um, Canticle for Leibovitz probably gets it closer to right because it takes millenni- well, a millennium or two for, for humanity to recover
2: we have a film on the Scala map that's kind of in that idiom which is At Latimer Road the final programme ah. aka the last days of man on earth which is based on the first of Michael Moorcock's Jerry Cornelius' quartet
1: A Tasty World
2: but in that, the fact there's been a nuclear war which has resulted in there being a huge pile of old cars next to the uh, National Gallery and things like that is just sort of treated as given. Mm. It's sort of like, you know, we're now starting to see um, an idiom of zombie films where zombies are just like badgers. Yeah. You know, they're there, but they're just a kind of nuisance of zombies. Yeah, Morcott was treating nuclear warfare and apocalypse as... A sort of given trope of the science fiction idiom.
1: Yeah. Which that's the trouble with genre furniture. It can trivialise
2: real things. But there are other books I mean when you were talking a moment ago I was thinking
1: about John Wyndham and and David Triffids that still pack a punch. Yeah. Um, And the chrysalids. But I mean it's it's true of course um, there are important more recent science fiction novels which treat limited nuclear exchange as survivable I mean there is an atomic war in the background of Neuromancer though I mean it didn't explain how all of that lovely kit survived EMPs but never mind
2: So uh, one of the things about physical books, which is good, is that uh, you can sell them, and so authors like you, Ros, can make money. But they also produce dust, which I think you're breathing in too much of now. Yes, I really
1: am. And I've Sp- used my, my inhaler, so uh, I can feel my voice going as we talk, so I need to be outside.
2: Well, I've, I've really enjoyed visiting Hasman's Bookshop with you, Ros, and I, as well as encouraging listeners to watch Pete Watkins' The War Game. If you are visiting the area around King's Cross... Please do come to in.
1: It's a lovely shop.
2: It's a great place. The staff are very nice. They've accommodated us in recording this over the last half hour.
1: Very tolerantly, but they need to set up for an event because there are lots of events here too. So you should look in time out and see what, what book events are happening in Houseman's Bookshop.
2: Well, Ross, uh, well, we thanked Andrew uh, before he left us, but thanks again to Andrew for joining us. But, Ross, I always say this, but it's always true. I really do appreciate you joining me in making these programmes I mean we don't oh, make yeah, any I money I love make,
1: making them with you well, I just
2: I love hanging out with you and talking to you and sharing it with our listeners and talking about these uh, very important films which give us pause I think that although we've tried to be somewhat light hearted in this programme I would also hope it makes people think about the real risk that we, that we face that the world is a very dangerous I mean the world is always a dangerous place but um, I mean, you lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Maybe we should we should finish briefly with this. So, when you were younger, you lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you think that that period then and the sort of political uncertainty we face now are they comparable?
1: Probably yes. But on the other hand, who's to say? I mean, when I was when I was twelve, thirteen, I didn't really get it. I mean, I knew the world might end tomorrow in the way that you know because my parents said so. Mm. Because my parents were much more worried than I was, mm. um, and your dad was quite a serious military guy. He'd been
2: been around in the war, shall we say. Yeah. He, he knew his onions when it came to yeah. political risk.
1: But they were worried. They were both worried, um, and we talked about it at school. Um, we said, "Oh well, see in the morning, maybe." In a way that wasn't entirely light hearted. Well, I'm looking
2: forward to doing this again with you soon and I'm looking forward to making more music for films, but...
1: (sighs) Inshallah. This has been a Beekeepers production for Resonance FM at resonancefm.com. Resonance FM in London at 104.4 FM.
2: podcast is more music for films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice